As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. Welcome to A King's Reign. My name is Andrew Schlecht. I'm the executive producer and host for the Athletic MBA show. We are incredibly excited to bring you a King's Reign, a new narrative podcast series detailing LeBron James' life, career, and impact. For the next two weeks here on this feed, we're going to be talking all about LeBron, bringing you stories beginning all the way back from when he was nine years old, Telling those stories is a team of journalists here at The Athletic, voices you know very well, including Sam Amick, David Aldridge, Marcus Thompson, the No Dunks crew, and many, many more. We've gotten an incredible range of people from across LeBron's life and career to contribute their experiences. In this first episode, The Athletic's Joe Varden details LeBron before the hype, how LeBron moved from intriguing high school player to an internationally known prospect all before he turned 18 years old. At a young age, I didn't know how great LeBron was. Honestly, I was I was trying to compete with him. I was trying to, but then it was once we got to high school when the um, first magazine cover came out. And then Joe Varden is joined by The Athletics, Jason Lloyd, and Tom Withers from the Associated Press. Three people who have seen just about every moment of LeBron's career, from St. Vincent St. Mary's to the Lakers bubble title in Disney. Welcome to episode one of A King's Reign. I've known LeBron since I was nine years old. This is Willie McGee of Akron, Ohio. He has been friends with LeBron James since they were in the third grade. I moved here when I was eight. Uh, from Chicago with my older brother and sister-in-law. When I moved here, my brother got me into playing basketball to motivate me academically. And the first team I ever played with from 8 to 10 was with LeBron. LeBron and Willie played for the Summit Lake Hornets. On that team was another Akron boy named Frankie Walker, whose father invited LeBron to live with the family while LeBron's mother, Gloria, got her life together. He uh, was living with Coach Frankie 
and um, him, Frankie, and I always used to come to the YMCA to play to shoot around because Coach Frankie was playing with the older guys. So I was on the side with them getting in the way with the kids on the side. The Hornets won a championship, beating the team coached by Drew Joyce, who would later coach LeBron and his friends at Akron St. Vincent St. Mary High School. It was LeBron's first year playing organized basketball, and Willie says the future NBA superstar was really good as a child rookie. He could make a left-hand layup. He could make a left-hand layup, and he made it look easy. And, and that he was saying that this is his first time playing organized basketball on the team. Because prior, if I'm not mistaken, it was all football. So I think our first year playing organized or rec ball together was 8-10. to 10. And to me, it seemed like he had been playing for a couple of years, man. <laughs> you know what I mean? That's making, uh, you know, stuff look routine and easy where we're trying to trying to load up to make a left-hand layup, jump stops, skip passes, some of those things that came routine to him. LeBron, Willie, Drew, and a fourth boy, Sheon Cotton, were inseparable as they went through grade school. As eighth graders, their AAU team reached the national championship at Disney World and lost by a single point. The four of them were preparing to enroll at Akron Bookdale High School as freshmen a predominantly black public school in Akron with a famous local basketball coach, Harvey Sims. But there was just one problem. Drew felt Bookdale thought he was too small. Drew Joyce III would go on to play college basketball at the University of Akron and had a long, successful playing career in Europe. But when he was entering the ninth grade, he was not yet five feet tall. Though his father, Drew Joyce II, was on the coaching staff at Bookdale, it was clear the younger Joyce didn't think he would get a chance to play there. He knew the coach at St. Vincent St. Mary's, a man by the name of Keith Dambrot, and felt more comfortable enrolling at the private Catholic school. We were all in after Drew wanted to go there. It was just like young kids scared to put both feet in and be all in, but we had kind of already made the decision. And we was we were St. V all in uh, once Drew kind of made the decision that, well, let's look at St. V. Come meet Coach Dambrot. Just this and this. When you met him, you can help but to love him, man. Players, coach, challenge you basketball-wise to be better, uh, was able to sit down with you and, and really cared about you and how your family was doing. So it was a good fit, let alone Coach Drew came over with us and helped that transition go a lot smoother. The course of Ohio high school basketball history was changed. Not because some wealthy private school with unlimited resources at its disposal lured a super talented prodigy away from a poor public school. No. LeBron and his other friends went to St. V because Drew was too short to play at Bookdale. I don't think we necessarily had to go to St. V and and, and St. V made us successful. I think we could have went to Bookdale. Same thing would have happened. We chose St. V uh, because of friendship. You know what I mean? The opportunity uh, to go through a process together, friendship, relationships, the things we had been through before high school, the success, the hard times. And we was able to go through it together. I think it was a bond or something that was there um, that was kind of unspoken, but everybody felt it that we wanted to continue to to uh, enjoy the friendships, uh, the the competition, going to compete together, win, lose, or draw, and, and accepting the, the outcome, and and really, um, really just having brothers to really go through through things together with that was like minded, that had the same goals. Um, it's rare that you that you get a group of guys that. That's there for the same reason. You know what I mean? You can have a team. Everybody have different agendas. No. Since seventh, eighth grade, every team we've been on, me, Drew, Sheon, and Brian really had the same agenda. Romeo comes uh, sophomore year. 
and he fits right in. You know what I'm saying? Because he because he had the same agenda. He was there for a reason, and everything that's really took off from there. The Fighting Irish didn't lose a game during LeBron's freshman year. Standing six foot two, LeBron averaged 21 points and six boards per game. The season began with all four of them, including LeBron, being asked to defer to a senior on the St. V team named Maverick Carter. They've got two really good players. First and senior, Maverick Carter, who had 26 points and six rebounds in the first game. Today, Maverick is LeBron's chief business partner who oversees all of his off-court deals, especially his Hollywood endeavors and relationship with Nike. The one year Maverick and LeBron played together in high school, Maverick, and not LeBron, was supposed to be the primary option on offense. Coach Danbry got us to accept our role at a young age. You know what I mean? Coming in, whereas you freshmen coming in, playing varsity, everybody want to score, everybody know all. If you want to play varsity, it's going to be a score and everybody else going to play defense. Then you fall into your role. You have to rebound, not turn the ball over, different things. And honestly, when we came in, Brown wasn't even that score. He might have ended up, but that guy was Maverick. Maverick was, he's going to be the score. Everybody else going to play defense. He might not play as hard as y'all, but we need him to score. You know what I'm saying? By the end, middle, you know, both of them tag team and they first team all state, they scoring and Brown taking off different stuff. But it's falling and accepting your role and doing what the team needed you to do. Now we have the Division Three State Boys Basketball Finals coming up here on ONN as Akron St. Vincent St. Mary battles Jamestown Greenview here at the Jerome Schottenstein Center in Columbus. The Fab Four burst onto the Ohio high school scene and won the state title as freshmen under Danbrock. Leader in the lane, Irish break, LeBron James put St. Vincent St. Mary ahead. They bring in another freshman off the bench. Four of their top eight are freshmen on this team. Then his sophomore year, his game and stature across Ohio grew. St. V only lost once during his sophomore campaign. He increased the scoring average to 25 points. The school moved some of their games from the tiny gym on Market Street over to the University of Akron's arena as LeBron became a growing attraction. Following the season, LeBron was the first sophomore ever to be named Mr. Ohio Basketball. USA Today even placed young LeBron on its first-team All-USA high school basketball team, along with names like Eddie Curry, Kwame Brown, and Dewan Wagner. For Willie, during this time period, his closeness to LeBron clouded his perception about how huge of a figure his friend was becoming. At a young age, I didn't know how great LeBron was. Honestly, I was I was trying to compete with him. I was trying to, but then it was once we got to high school when the um, first magazine cover came out, the Slam magazine. The national media hype changed everything. A six foot seven athletic monster at age 16, Slam magazine suggested LeBron could be the best high school player in America. And in February of 2001, Sports Illustrated placed LeBron on the cover under the moniker, The Chosen One. That's when I first started to realize how good he was because, um, Two weeks before that, he made mention about being on the magazine. Two weeks later, he's on there. Before his junior year at St. V, LeBron was invited to the famous ABCD camp in New Jersey. The ABCD camp, started by basketball shoe exec Sonny Vaccaro in 1984, was for top-rated high school players throughout the U.S. In front of camp counselor Kobe Bryant, LeBron was named the MVP of the ABCD camp. 
A few years ago, Willie saw clips of his friend LeBron at the camp, and what stood out to him was that he could tell LeBron didn't even give his best performance. On my end, I remember him coming from that camp and telling the stories of, of um, hitting game winners, playing Lenny Cook, getting half quarters, buzzer beater. But then I get to see the footage. And I see footage of a, a young LeBron and being a former teammate of his, you, you know when he's playing hard or in the zone or he's comfortable. You see you see the look in his eye and he's locked in. And, and I'm watching him play maybe three minutes on this on this skit where he looked uncomfortable. He didn't look locked in. He, he was still trying to feel his way out. And after that, he becomes the number one player in the country. And it was so much more left in him. And he was just doing routine stuff. He was making plays and, you know, he wasn't even locked into the game to look one on his face. And that and that was the first time it kind of put perspective, like, man, how great LeBron was because he jumped to number one and wasn't even playing his best game, being a teammate. Over his final two years at St. V, LeBron won National Gatorade Player of the Year twice for his junior year the Irish added a bruising forward named Romeo Travis, and he became the second best player on an already incredibly deep roster. Together, they played nationally televised games on ESPN in sold-out arenas across the U.S. They won another state championship, and LeBron averaged more than 30 points per game. He was also embroiled in controversy. LeBron James isn't living a life of luxury yet, but his luxury SUV may turn his life upside down. During his senior year, LeBron was seen driving around Akron in a Hummer SUV and was ultimately suspended for a couple games for accepting improper benefits as an amateur athlete. He came back and led the Irish to their third state title in his four seasons. And before he was drafted number one in the 2003 NBA draft, Nike handed him a $90 million shoe contract. He was living with his mother, Gloria, in a two-bedroom apartment on the sixth floor of a public housing project in Akron when he became a millionaire 90 times over. And for us, it wasn't like, well, you got to play good at this game because Nike and everybody here like, no, we got to play good. We got to win this game. And if we win, you're going to look good from that. So it was like, man, it was always a team effort. It's like he never had to go out there alone and feel like he had to do it himself. We understood uh, good teams, people star in their roles. About 40 miles to the north of Akron, in Cleveland, the Cavaliers of the NBA were on pace to be the worst team in the league, but for good reason. They wanted to draft LeBron. There were very good, other very good players in that draft, as you know, but none at LeBron's level. I mean, Dwayne Wade, Carmelo Anthony, Bush, and so on. But so we would have been competitive. This is Gordon Gunn, who bought the Cavs in 1983 for $20 million from Ted Stepien. I just felt what having a player that was so well known in our market those days, so well respected and highly thought of, that having him be on our team was just uh, terrific for not only for the franchise and all the fans in Northeast Ohio, but it was just a, one of those things that doesn't happen very often in sports. The Cavs quickly became a good team under Gund, piecing together an exciting young roster with budding stars like Mark Price, Ron Harper, and Brad Doherty. Cleveland was highly competitive for a decade, but could never get out of the Eastern Conference because Michael Jordan reigned there. He looks, he looks, he gives to Jordan. Jordan to the circle, puts the shot in the air. Good! The game's over, and the Bulls have won. The Cavs moved from the suburbs to a sparkling new arena in downtown Cleveland in the mid-90s, but their teams were fading. Beginning in 1998, 
They never won more than 32 games over the next five seasons, and local interest was waning. There was one surefire way to turn that around, be bad enough to win the number one pick in the NBA's annual draft lottery. It was difficult losing like that. We didn't tank. We didn't lose on purpose, so to speak. I, I wouldn't do that. The Cavs won just 16 of their first 81 games in the 2002-2003 season. Coach John Lucas had already been fired. One more loss on the final day of the regular season would have guaranteed Cleveland the worst record in the league, which back then would have meant an even greater chance to win the draft lottery than it does today. Except the Cavs won their final game which moved them into a tie for the worst record with the Denver Nuggets. Even if Gunn said the Cavs weren't tanking, his deputies in the front office were furious with interim coach Keith Smart, who couldn't squeeze one more loss out of what had been the worst team in the league all season. But, as Gunn tells us, winning the last game actually gift-wrapped LeBron James to the Cavs. Ironically, as it turned out later, we learned the choices we got were allocated out of the 1,000 numbers, permutations of those numbers. If we hadn't split those with a second place team, but instead, if we had lost the game against New Jersey, the last game, we would have had more chances, but different chances. In other words, the, the way they were assigned would have been different. And the number that won it, 6, 2, 3, 12, wouldn't have fallen in that group. We would not have gotten that, that ball sometimes. Things work for, for a reason. And now let's get right to the results. The 2003 draft lottery was on May 22nd. The 13th pick goes to the Memphis Grizzlies. The Cavs and Nuggets entered the day with the same 22.5% chance of getting the number one pick. The seventh pick goes to the Chicago Bulls. Tad Carper, vice president of communications for the Cavs at the time, unbeknownst to Gund, had a jersey made with James on the back and number 23 on both sides and snuck it in his briefcase, just in case. The sixth pick goes to the Los Angeles Clippers. That means Memphis has moved up. When the draft order was announced, one by one, and it became clear the Cavs had won. The second pick goes to the Memphis Grizzlies. The team's TV analyst, Austin Carr, broke down in tears. Fans all over Northeast Ohio rejoiced. As far as lotteries go, I, I don't think I'll ever win one that's quite as meaningful as that one. There was no doubt the King's reign was set to begin in Cleveland. Just try to make Cleveland the way it was when, I don't want to say this, but when Michael Jordan used to kill us all the time. <laughs> but I'm going to just try to do the best I can. And uh, I think I'm going to do a real, a real good job. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? 
Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com slash courtside to learn more. And now, two pigeons bemoaning the fact you can stream DirecTV satellite-free. You see this? A family watching baseball on DirecTV with no satellite dish in sight. Let's heckle them. You call that changing the channel? Choke up on the remote, buddy. I hope getting all these games on DirecTV makes up for your mother not pre-chewing your sunflower seeds. DirecTV has the most MLB games. Visit DirecTV.com. Claim based on total games offered on national and regional sports networks with choice package or higher. Availability of RSNs varies by zip code and package. High-speed internet service required. Terms and restrictions apply. Looking for the best place to buy tickets for any of your favorite teams or sporting events? We've got the spot. Our partner, StubHub, has been the leading ticket marketplace in the world for over 20 years, providing a 100% guarantee with every order. From a worldwide selection of live events, the widest choice of tickets and industry-leading partnerships, StubHub has what you need to purchase with confidence. StubHub, an official partner of The Athletic. Before you dive back in, we want to let you know that you can unlock tomorrow's episode today and enjoy this entire series ad-free with a subscription to The Athletic Audio Plus. Unlock that now for just 99 cents a month by clicking subscribe at the top of The Athletic NBA Show's show page on Apple Podcasts. Thanks for listening and enjoy the rest of A King's Reign. Thanks for checking out the first episode of A King's Reign. Coming up now is Joe Varden with Jason Lloyd and Tom Withers discussing those early LeBron years in Akron and Cleveland. I'm joined now by one of the hardest working men in Cleveland media and also by Jason Lloyd. No, we're here that with That is Tom- so unfair. <laughs> we're here with Tom Withers of the Associated Press, uh, known across the country. He's been here for quite a while. And has been, has been covering LeBron for more than 20 years. He'll tell us exactly how long here in a second. And by my colleague, Jason Lloyd at The Athletic, who has written a book called, it's right behind me, The Blueprint, uh, which was all about uh, getting LeBron the second time here in Cleveland. Uh, but I wanted to start with you, Tom. Uh, just how long or when did you start to cover LeBron and how that came about and, and what happened? First of all, thanks for having me, you guys. This is, uh, this is a real treat. So I came to, I transferred from the uh, New York AP to Cleveland in 1998. And my first couple of years here, um, LeBron was then, you know, a, a middle schooler, soon to be a freshman and then a sophomore in high school. And I can remember, I think the first one who told me about him was Mike Patika from uh, Cleveland Plain Dealer, Cleveland.com, longtime, you know, freelance journalist here in the Cleveland area. And he had just kind of put LeBron on my radar and, um, you know, kind of followed, you know, what he was doing as a freshman and what have you at, you know, on the um, Akron Beacon Journal and some other sites. And had heard kind of through some some coaching circles and what have you about this kid that played at St. Vincent St. Mary and to, to keep an eye on him. So I think that actually the first time I met LeBron was in, of all places, <laughs> the Cavs locker room. Um, he was a sophomore in high school. And was invited into the Cavs locker room, and we were in there for a post-game situation. And somebody pointed out, "Hey, that's LeBron James over there." So I went over and introduced myself, and I said, "Hey, you know, I'd really like to spend a little time with you. I've heard that you know you've had um, a sensational summer playing at camps around the country, and I'd like to get to know you and know your story, etc." 
And he pointed me immediately into the direction of Eddie Jackson, who was um, his mom, Gloria's boyfriend at the time and said, anything you want to know about me, you got to go through him first. So I went over to Eddie and talked to Eddie. And this is in the, I believe the fall of 2001. So um, that was my first introduction to LeBron. And, and here we are now, 23, 24 years later. Wow. Wow. Now, my first introduction to him, I was in college at the College of Worcester and had um, I got myself a job on Friday and Saturday nights in the fall and in the winter helping out with high school coverage. And I, I believe at that time, I can't remember what year it was as far as LeBron being in high school, but uh, Brian Winhurst couldn't cover the game and Tom Reed couldn't cover the game. And I think, and David Lee Morgan, who who may have been covering the Cavs at the time, but but anyway, like three or four of their top guys couldn't do it. And so I got a chance to cover uh, a couple of St. V games. One was at the at Akron U at the Jar. Another one was at the Canton Civic Center. And uh, and I remember that that was the night that Shaq and Rick Fox had, had come down. The Lakers were playing. Um, I wanted to ask you before we moved on. There's that iconic, there's so many iconic photos of LeBron, but there's that one when he was a, a, a child, a high school kid, and he was at Gundarina at the time, and he was meeting Michael Jordan in the hallway. Were you there right, that night? Right, yeah, yeah, yeah. Out in the hallway. And we saw that kind of that moment happening. In fact, um, that night, I actually asked Michael about LeBron and then subsequently had gotten a colleague in Chicago to ask Michael about LeBron as all this was starting to start, you know, the, the snowball effect, if you will, began in that summer of 2001 when he went to that um, ABCD camp in New Jersey and tore up Lenny Cook and these, you know, these famous matchups of the top recruits at the time. And that's when LeBron's profile really exploded. And um, I remember those early days, Joe, like you're mentioning, you know, the big struggle for me was in Ohio, it was one thing to know about LeBron and, and knowing of him as this prep up and coming star. And then for me to convince my bosses in New York that this was a story worth following and pursuing. And, um, you know, some of the, the pushback I got early on and I just said to them, trust me, <laughs> I've seen and seeing is believing. But by the time that the Sports Illustrated cover hit had, had your argument already been made or did that make it for you um no it had been made and you know i was lucky enough to um have a great boss in new york terry taylor at the time and i think she she understood um you know first of all she she appreciated my passion for it because i had been able to go to a couple of practices and games and and after talking to so many scouts and people in those early days joe and jason where they just said to me yeah this is the next guy. This is the next Jordan. And when I heard that from some some prominent people, especially in the NBA that I knew, I just felt like, you know what? I got to stay on this. I got to get on this right now. And then, as we all know, you know, some of the, the, the news developments in the early days with his fight against the OHSAA and some other things really raised the profile of this story to go from being in, you know, the Akron area and the Northeast Ohio area to being a, a national and then an international story. So, yeah, I felt I don't want to say that um, I, I necessarily beat Sports Illustrated to the punch, but I did. Um, I was um, at least a several months ahead of them with our first national profile on LeBron. And um, and so and basically those those early stories that I did about him was basically just saying to people, here's this kid 
you haven't heard about him, but you're about to. Now, uh, followers of Jason's career know that he covered home and away the longest losing streak in franchise history. <laughs> and what's even better about that is uh, they lose however many in a row and Jason's written the number nine million times and I still can't remember. 26. It. Okay, but but if memory serves, and and obviously you and I have had a couple of wines together over the years that may have erased some of these memories, but if memory serves, you they won a game, but you for some reason didn't make that game. I was at a birthday party, a family birthday party. <laughs> so you actually covered like thirty-one losses in a row, or something. Oh, more like than that. that, they lost ten straight. And then they beat the Knicks in double overtime. And that's the game I missed. We had a some sort of family birthday party. So I missed that game. And then they lost 26 in a row. So I covered 36 consecutive losses. <laughs> and I have likened it to going to a funeral 36 days in a row, digging up the body and then burying it again, only to show up the <laughs> next night and dig up the body and then bury it again. It was awful. So, so the reason that I bring that up is because so you were you experienced perhaps like no other the the worst stretch probably well yeah the worst stretch in in Cavs history but that was just one stretch of games i think the teams leading up to when the Cavs were able to draft lebron initially were worse what do you guys remember about those Cavs teams at the turn of the of the century the o the 2000 team the 01 team the 02 team well and the streak that you're referencing was the year after LeBron left that they lost 26 in a row in 36 to 37. But the year prior to the lottery, when he was available, they very clearly, I mean, they traded their top three leading scorers for nothing for you and me, basically Lamont Murray, Andre Miller and West persons and Miller wanted a max contract and they weren't going to give it to him. So they traded him to LA for Darius miles. There's a name from the past, right? And, and miles, you know, loved to make movies, but wasn't very good at basketball. And and that's just sort of the setup of what led them into being able to be bad enough to uh, to be in position to take LeBron. I mean, Tom knows this. They were stuck in mediocrity. They weren't very good, but they weren't awful either. And they knew LeBron was the one way to really save the organization in terms of like being able to to and and just invigorate the city and win a championship. But they weren't really bad enough to be in position to to get them. So they just threw everything overboard. Anything that wasn't nailed down. They just they just traded for for nothing, uh, just to be in position to to be bad enough to do it. Yeah, my some of my most vivid memories of those days were you know Fat Sean Kemp at the end of yeah. his run, right, and then the the empty electric blue seats in that arena that just stood out so prominently when it was you know at wrong way Ricky Davis and all that stuff. But you know as I you know whenever I am asked you know whether it's by you guys or others about LeBron in those early years, I remind people that this franchise may have been on its way to becoming the Oklahoma City Cavaliers, if not for LeBron. I mean, you know, Gordon Gunn was a supportive owner, but he had gotten to the point where, you know, they weren't making any money. Um, you know, I would argue that it's still really not a basketball town. Um, it has been in spurts, but that was during a time where, you know, I could have seen that franchise moving pretty easily had the had the ping pong balls not bounced their way that night. My early memory of, of those teams, uh, you know, we had, uh, we've been joking around about some of the guys on the roster, you know, the Sagana Jop was one. Uh, one of my favorites was, was Ricky Davis. And my first year covering the NBA at all was that the year before 
they they drafted LeBron. I was actually <laughs> I even then I I was looking up to Tom. Um, you know, was, I was just being introduced into this business, and um, and I had been hired full time uh, at the Worcester Daily Record, which was one of like five or six papers that were all they're all very small, but they were owned by the same family. Um, but but my favorite memory of that year before they drafted him was the night that Ricky Davis punted a ball into the stands. <laughs> I don't remember what it was for. It was towards the end of the game. I think he was upset with an official for some reason. And he just took a swing with his leg and knocked it into like the 15th row. It was the same year that he threw the ball at the rim for his own uh, triple right. double. Right. And remember, I don't know if you remember Ricky's Renegades. There was this crew oh, yeah. of of fans that kind of became infamous or famous at the time because they were, they were like stuck by themselves amongst all these empty seats and they would always either take their shirts off or whatever and, and what have you. And so they were, they were so bad. I mean, we've got, you guys have seen this with whether it's been bad, bad Indians teams or Browns teams over the year, they kind of took on a life of their own and they became, you know, lovable for being as bad as they were. So, but I, you know, I'll go back to what I said before. I mean, this team was really, in my mind, in jeopardy of leaving this town, if not for LeBron. John Lucas was the coach. My pigs, Chris Mims. Mims. And and I don't know. Do you know why they fired him? Like they were losing. They were doing exactly what they wanted to do. They were losing. And then, and like LeBron liked him and he was clearly never the long-term answer. Right. Jason, you remember, I mean, he was such a loose cannon. I mean, he was liable to say, which was, which was great for us. Because he was liable to say anything before a game, and we'd be like, "Oh my God, there's tomorrow's headline!" And then by post game, <laughs> he would say something even more outrageous. Oh my God, he got them fined. Yeah, it's got they got them fined, right? For LeBron coming for LeBron the- coming for the workout, he would. They were fined one hundred fifty thousand. Like that was a, that was a lot of money. He was fined one hundred fifty thousand dollars. Yeah, and he was suspended for two games. So he winds up getting fired. This is the year before LeBron, uh, before the LeBron lottery. They end up firing them and they bring in Keith Smart as the interim coach. And they actually start winning games toward the end of the year. And they won their last game of the season. Now, again, remember, they trade their top three leading scores from the year before. They throw everything overboard. They take the organization down to the studs just for the chance to possibly be able to draft this guy. And then Keith Smart rolls in. They start winning games toward the end of the year. They win their last game of the season. They pull into a tie with Denver. It totally jacks up their odds. They were like on a clear path to having the best odds to win the lottery. They lose. They win the last game. Now they're in a tie with Denver. And Dick Watson was the general counsel at the time. And I put this in the book that I wrote. Dick goes storming into Keith's office after the last game, just irate, just incensed. And he goes, you fucked it all up. It's the last day. We've spent months on this. You fucked it up on the last day. Just screaming at Keith for winning the game. And Keith was like, hey, man, it's all here to do. Like the guys went out, you know, coaches want to win. They coach to win. They're not coaching to lose. And the organization was just furious that they won that last game. And obviously it all works out. They still win the lottery and they get LeBron. But I mean, nobody was hiding the fact that they were tanking. Nobody was hiding the fact that they were they were playing for LeBron, they were playing for the chance. And, and, and you know, I mean, we need to say, even if they don't get the number one pick in that draft, what just an absolutely loaded draft that was, the amount of Hall of Famers yeah. that came out of it. You know, it's yeah. aside from LeBron, you got Carmelo and Dwayne and Chris Bosch, 
it was just a star-studded draft. So even if they don't land number one, they feel like they're in pretty good position, obviously, to be able to land a, a franchise-type pillar. But obviously, they were all in on LeBron, and then they win their last game on the last day of the season to put it all into jeopardy. Now, I get to go back. Uh, this is before. This is in that final season before before the lottery, and Jermaine Jones was on the team. And Tom, as you remember, in those days, the we all we got to sit on the floor to cover those games. Don't I so ever? We could, hear, we could hear everything, and uh, and so like the Cavs have the ball, they're walking it up the floor, and it's in Jermaine's hands. And Luke is like, Jermaine, Jermaine, call a play. And so Jermaine looks at him, and he's like, uh, uh thirty four. God damn it, Jermaine. We don't have a play called 34. <laughs> I can remember in the early days when there were still the doubters and people would come to Cleveland and I would see, you know, national media, let's say, that would show up at uh, Cleveland State for the Oak Hill game. And I, I became kind of like this, you know, the the local guy who was there first. And so they would all come up to me and say, is this kid really as good as we've heard? And I would always look at these media members during the game after LeBron would get a dunk or make some kind of a pass and they would look at each other and I would nod and say, I told you, this is what I'm talking about. And that's what became of, you know, the Cavs once, once you saw, you believed. And that went from anybody that had either seen him in high school and had their doubts about whether it would translate to the next level or even longtime NBA guys that had their doubts that he could carry a team singularly on his back. Seen it, done it. He just looked like a man playing with children. That's it too. In That's high school. Like I remember covering a couple of his of the playoff games. They, they had a they had a playoff game against Firelands, which is like a school out in the country in far western suburbs of, of Cleveland. And these dudes didn't stand a chance. And and LeBron, I remember they had like a center. His name was Ron Higgins, and he was like, you know, I mean, for for Lorraine County standards, he was a good player, and he and LeBron just devoured him. And it was like one man playing with nine children on the basketball court. The first practice I ever got to go to at St. B, Coach Joyce would take the first team and the second team. And he would give the second team a 15-point lead, and he would put two minutes on the clock. And then so team one, which then was LeBron, Romeo Travis, Drew Joyce Jr., Sean <laughs> Cotton, Willie McGee, would then press the shit out of that team and try to make up a 15-point lead or 15-point deficit in two minutes. And as you, you can imagine what went on there, right? Steal at half court, lob. It's dunk. like taping raw meat to our chest and throwing us not, in the lion's den. So it was unbelievable. And so I tell you that because then LeBron's junior year, they're at Barberton playing Kenmore. And God bless those poor kids from Kenmore. <laughs> they did not get the ball across midcourt, I think, on their first six or seven possessions, <laughs> where it was literally steal, dunk. Steal three, steal dunk. And why I remember that game so vividly was because this was when all the OHSAA stuff was going on. And I got a call from my office as I'm courtside who said, Hey, there's a ruling coming from the OHSAA. How can we get it to you? Now, meanwhile, this is, I mean, we had email and all that stuff, but it was not like it is now where I could get it on my phone or whatever. So I had my desk fax me the OHSAA ruling to the AD in Barberton's office. So I wow. left my courtside seat during the game, 
to go into this AD's small little office as I saw the thing like scrolling across the facts and then, oh you know, God. try to put all that stuff in my game story. And so that's also the same game. And excuse me for rambling on here, but it just brings that's back right. such vivid memories. LeBron jumped over this kid from Kenmore and dunked him. <laughs> Completely skied over this kid who was like like five feet ten or whatever. And I remember asking LeBron after the game, like, hey, how would you rate that dunk? And he said, you mean with the, the one where I jumped over that dude? I'm like, that's the one. <laughs> you guys can imagine. I could talk for 20 hours about oh, some yeah. of those days God, and some of great. those games. And, you know, Maurice Claret sitting courtside. Yeah. Wearing the Jim Brown jersey. And and then you think, about where, you, know, when you think about where Rich Paul went from the guy who sold LeBron the jerseys to now the most noted agent in professional. <laughs> most sports. powerful agent yeah. in the NBA. Sitting at the right hand of Adele, by the way. It's just like, <laughs> wait a minute. Rich and LeBron became friends through like, you know, some of the same V people or whatever. And Rich was up in the Cleveland area. LeBron was in Akron. And I think initially the connection was either through AAU or a friend of a friend or what have you. And then Rich just became this guy who was kind of, you know, at, at the bigger games, he was always around. And you heard like, oh, yeah, that's Rich Paul. That's like one of LeBron's friends in in Cleveland because there was this whole Akron-Cleveland rivalry going on at the time. And that's why... You know, LeBron still talks about how, you know, Akron is his hometown. Cleveland is not his hometown. He's proud of being from Northeast Ohio or whatever. But yeah, Rich was just always this guy that was on the side. And then I think it, it came to where he either sold these throwback jerseys to the store in Cleveland, that urban whatever over in, um, was it Beachwood or in uh, Shaker Heights? And so I think Rich was initially the connection for the clothing store to get the throwback jerseys, which for some reason I remember were valued at $845. <laughs> I don't know why that has stuck in my head all these years, but one was a Wes Unsell jersey. And I think the other was the Jim Brown jersey. So he got these jerseys from this store and it actually had, it was against OHSAA policy because he was, he was getting, he had gone to the store and had done an appear, appearance there as a junior and signed some autographs. And as a way of paying him for the appearance, the store gave LeBron these two jerseys, which then he was, this is before NIL, obviously. So he was benefiting off of his name, image, or likeness at the time, which broke every rule the, that the OHSAA had. So they actually um, suspended LeBron for a couple of games. It got thrown out. But, you know, that on top of the Hummer um, and that whole thing with Gloria, I mean, we could do about a 17-hour podcast on that alone. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. Rich was wearing a Warren Moon throwback and saw LeBron at the airport. And LeBron saw the Warren Moon throwback and loved it. There and you said, go. And said, Where did you where did you get that? And Rich was on his way. They saw each other at the airport in Atlanta. And Rich was on his way to go get more of these throwbacks mm -hmm. and put LeBron in touch with his contact in Atlanta and said, Here's my guy, you know, drop my name and he'll give you a discount. And from there bloomed this, <laughs> all of this. So, you know, when they drafted him that night in June and he said the thing about I'm going to light up Cleveland like Las Vegas, one of the great quotes probably in NBA history. I, I remember that. I remember being there for that. But by that point, LeBron coming to the Cavs was a foregone conclusion. And it had been for since since May when, when the lottery happened. The lottery. Well, real quick, real was, quick. We need to interject that one thing about the lottery. 
was Tad Carper, the team spokesman at the time, shows up to the lottery with a LeBron. Well, that's jersey. what I'm gonna ask. Oh, I'm sorry. Yeah, like no, All yeah, right, I want to. That's what I wanted to go. The, the the night in question, the the moment of truth was the lottery night because you still have a ping pong ball that can bounce a different way. And, you know, I know Tom was there. I, I was not. I'm not sure if you were there, Jason, but take us back. But but you still you I mean, you have the tad story. Anyway. So the, both of you take us back to that night, the anticipation and then the feeling when the the Cavs actually won the lottery and, and the right to draft LeBron. I had become a little bit familiar with downtown Akron at that point from um, having covered the two seasons of of home games, whether they were um, at the school or at the jar. So I, I knew my way around Akron like I never imagined I would. You know, you would you take Route 8 to go one way and then you'd start go the outer belt of Akron to go another to get to the campus or what have you. So I had spent some time there was at the Akron Hilton. Um, and I had spent some time downtown staying there because um, when the OHSAA, when the OHSAA, that's it, um, had gotten into this thing with LeBron over the throwback jerseys and the Hummer and all those investigations, I had stayed at the hotel because um, I was in court, actually in court with LeBron and Fred Nance. And LeBron didn't go into court, but but Fred Nance represented him against in the case against the OHSAA. Anyway, I had become familiar with the Helton. And so, um, yeah, I went, I did, I went down there. I spent two nights down there um, in anticipation of the lottery. And you're right, Joe. I mean, the buzz around Cleveland and Northeast Ohio and the anticipation, um, you know, until we got to the championship in 2016, I could argue that that night when the Cavs won the lottery was the greatest moment in Cavs history. I know. There's a lot of people that talk about the miracle of, of Richfield, and I understand all this, but this was such a a transcendent moment where everything absolutely changed when the when it was revealed that the Cavs had won it, and I was standing outside. So initially, and I didn't mean to interrupt, interrupt Jace, I'll get back to it real quick. So I was down in the hotel bar where we were watching on television, and basically a lot of the media was in that area because it was the only place where we had a TV where we could actually follow the lottery and then also be close enough to the rooms where LeBron and all the Akron St. B people were. So I'll never forget when, <laughs> when it came up that the Cavs were the winner. I mean, people were literally crying. They couldn't get over the fact that this had really happened, all this buildup. And for one of the first times in the history of Cleveland sports, it went Cleveland's way. And so immediately after it happened, I went down the hall outside of where LeBron and all his friends from St. V were gathered. And I got to, I got to tell you, and it hasn't been talked about a lot. There was as much people that were pissed off as were happy at the time, because a lot of people wanted him to get out of Northeast Ohio. And they felt like they knew that him going to Cleveland would there be, you know, the expectations were going to be through the roof, whether he was in, you know, Orlando or Miami or wherever. But the fact that he was going to be in Cleveland, there was going to be expectations that were going to be through the roof. Never mind everything else that would come along with him by him playing in his hometown. So, you know, while everybody was really excited about, you know, it going the right way for Cleveland, there was a big part of the Akron contingent that was like, uh-uh, we don't want this. How many people outside of this chat room remember that at one time 
Usher was a minority owner of the Cavs. Yeah. <laughs> the morning after the lottery, which was a Friday morning. So the lottery was on a Thursday night. And on that Friday morning, I drove down to Gundarina at the time because, I mean, people were flocking downtown and the phones were ringing off the hook at in their business offices. And there was just everything felt different. I mean, you used to go down to cover those games and you almost felt embarrassed to be there because they were so bad. And on that next morning, it was just like, oh, my God, the sun is shining on Cleveland. And think about the possibilities. We are on the map as a as a basketball town that has never happened before. So it was literally an overnight sensation, even though it had been building up for months to it happening. When it finally did happen, it was like, oh, my God. I mean, think of the possibilities that are ahead of all of us. When we think about LeBron and we think about Cleveland and he he ultimately uh, fulfilled every single prophecy, every single you, you know, every bar that had been set for him uh, at the, at that time when he was 18 years old, he eventually reached it, eclipsed it, uh, wrote a chapter in Cleveland sports history that nobody really could have ever have imagined, which really overshadowed those first two years. Then um, the Cavs didn't make the playoffs uh, in, in his rookie year or his second year, Paul Silas ended up getting fired. The team was sold. Uh, he didn't make the all-star game his first year. They had the whole screw up with Carlos Boozer. Um, you know, I mean, the the roster was was still funky. Ira Newble was on the team. There's just all kinds of crazy stuff. Like w- When you think about those early years, those first couple years uh, before the Cavs actually started to get good, what what are the things that come to mind? I guess when I think about the early LeBron years, I go kind of to the macro and I would almost wrap it around to not the present, but closer to the present for 15 years, 16 years, somewhere in there, LeBron was the focal point of this entire franchise. It was, we already laid out the year before he was the, he was even eligible to be drafted. The obsession they had with trying to get in position to get him. And then it it was, Oh my God, we got to get him. We got to get him. We got to get him. Oh my God, we got him. Okay. (laughs) Well now we have to win. Now we have to try and build the pieces around them to win. They had seven years with them. And the obsession was we have to get enough pieces around them to win. Oh shit. We just lost them. Okay. Well, how do you get them back? We got to get them back. (laughs) And they spent four years obsessed with trying to get them back. Oh my God. He came back. Okay. We really got to get it right this time. Now we really have to win. So it was one plus seven plus his four away. Plus the four they had with them. Literally 15 or 16 years, he was the entire obsession focal point of the organization. And remember, like I said, they traded away their top three leading scorers the year before he he came. They had nothing around him, nothing. They were starting from zero. So you've got this guy, this, this transcendent talent, and now you're scrambling to try and put as many pieces around him as you can. And they whiffed on their first round picks. You know, Luke Jackson, maybe he has a different career if his back doesn't blow out on him. Dewan Wagner has all kinds of health issues. Like what kind of different position are they in if, if just those two guys work out, you know, I don't know, but they were just constantly chasing their tail and they were constantly scrambling, trying to supplement the roster with enough and they never could. And, you know, I think, I mean, Tom, you were, you were there every day. I think the Luke Jackson pick was a big miss, not necessarily in that they misevaluated the talent, but just the fact that for health reasons or whatever else, it just didn't work out with them. And, and so they just, 
they didn't have, then they start trading first rounders to try and, and get the talent. And there were just too many holes and they could never fully catch up his first time here. But because of where they were starting from, it was just a fire drill to try and get the pieces around him and they could never get enough around him. And then the and then questions began then about his commitment, right? And then it got into, well, he's not doing anything to help us lower any free agency free. So does he really want to be here? And so, and at the time when we were living that, we really, you know, to your point, Jason, we didn't have that macro view because we were like so enthralled that they had him. Like, what do you do with him? Like you said, and I, unfortunately, I think that was kind of the mindset of the front office as well. They didn't know what to do, right? And they didn't really have the basketball people in place. And especially with the change of the ownership, right? Those guys didn't know what the hell they were doing. There was basically fantasy basketball for them. I mean, the early days of Dan, he was an absolute lunatic. Yeah. And, and, and he didn't, I mean, you know, he's passing notes to like coaches and games and stuff (laughs) and, and just like, just the chaos that surrounded it. And Danny Ferry, you know, God love him. Ferry was the one GM who sort of stood up to Dan more than the rest. And and Ferry sort of told his entire staff, like, listen, I don't need this job. I've got fuck you money. Like I, I, and and he told Dan, like players are off limits. You don't talk to the players. They're my players. And, and, and Danny sort of fought everyone's battles in that organization to his demise. Ultimately, part of the reason why I think it didn't work out between him and Dan was just because the fact that he didn't take any of Dan's crap and he did the best he could with the, with what was the pieces that were in front of him but just constantly trying to chase and constantly trying to chase and constantly trying to fill out the roster and always coming up one piece short or two pieces short and never being able to solve that riddle. And and LeBron was sort of a pioneer in the contract structuring and the way that he did it and being able to go back into free agency and max out another contract faster. We'd never really seen that before. And ultimately Cleveland only got seven years with them where if he'd have played by the, the quote unquote rules and signed the contracts on the timelines that normally would have been done, I think really he would have been locked under Cleveland's control for another extra couple of years. But he was as a businessman, he was really smart in the way that he structured that deal, but it just kept Cleveland under the gun the entire time he was here. I think, I mean, the thing that I've enjoyed about this, other than just listening to you guys and you like first person remembering this stuff, like as it was happening, but just like, think of where LeBron is now and who he is now and what he's become and literally a global icon. But these stories remind you of that. He was a kid and he is human and he, what he came from and like, like he, he, Nothing about his childhood or about his first couple of years in the NBA was normal, but like where he is now wasn't guaranteed. And I think okay. that reliving these th- these stories that we're telling now kind of reminds you of that. So the, the first time that leads right into what I was going to say, the first time I met him, he was eating a sub sandwich in the locker room and he asked me if I wanted half of his sandwich. <laughs> it was sophomore year of high school. He was the only one in the locker room. They had just played Avon Lake. I was working for the Lorraine morning journal, a small daily newspaper at the time. Avon Lake was in our coverage area. So I go, I want to see this kid. You know, it's, this is probably after your Tom, your first piece on, you're going to know who this guy is because he was very well known at the time. And I just wanted a glimpse of him. So I walk in the locker room. He's like, Hey, you want some of my sandwich? <laughs> I'm like, No, man, I'm good. <laughs> and, 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 and you're right. You know, we were there in, in different forms. I wasn't, I, you know, I was hardly ever around, but I was around enough 
to where we were in Boston. This is after the championship and we're in Boston and Joe, I don't know where you were, but Dave and I were in the locker room. Dave McMenamin and I were in the locker room with LeBron reliving his high school days. And he's talking to us about like girls he liked growing up <laughs> and how he would, how he would get in his beat up uh, Jeep Cherokee, I think it was, and just drive and drive. This is before days of GPS. And he'd come to Illyria and he would drive and yeah. drive and drive and drive and drive. And, and to be able to have those moments and share those moments with them, uh, it's special. And, you know, like Tom, to what you were saying, I, I take a deep amount of appreciation with the fact that, like, we were there for the championship. We chronicled the whole thing. You know, how many people were there every day and and were able to see it every single day and to see Tom, who besides you and I covered this team from the day that he left until the day that he came back mm-hmm. and were there for the 26 game losing streak and the confetti that fell when they beat the Clippers and it, they acted like they just won a championship and they had ended a 26 game losing streak and they celebrated by dropping confetti on the floor, which they did after every win back then, <laughs> which is kind of silly. And, and just all of the, the craziness yeah. of, of this franchise, you know, it's, it's been a wild ride. It's been a lot of fun. Uh, and it's been a great honor to really sort of chronicle him and that team for all those years. For me, it's that, the basketball that we the the way he played to me is what stands out more than anything else the fact that he went from dominating in high school games skipping college and going right out onto the onto the court and barely missing a beat and he was playing with you know you know i mean god bless all those guys but they had some really bad players surrounding him back then and I remember, you know, I knew he was going to struggle from a team standpoint. But to me, what stands out, Joe and Jason, is that he still shined. I mean, he was still the best player, you could argue, on a nightly basis on the floor at 18 years old. And so to me, that's what stands out more than anything was that he met the basketball standard that that we had set for him. And And you mentioned it before, Joe, you know. When everybody asks me about the comparison to Michael and LeBron, and I've been lucky in my career to have covered them both, and I hate when we compare them because I always feel like you don't compare the Mona Lisa and the Last Supper. You appreciate them both for the masterpieces that they are, and that's how I feel about those two. But to me, what differentiates LeBron from Michael is that there were not those expectations on Michael like there were on LeBron. He had to live up to being somebody else. And as you said, Joe, Joe, very well before, not only did he do that, (laughs) he took the bar even higher. And, you know, I've been very lucky in that. um, It's a hell of a story, man. Barkley says it all the time. It might be the greatest story in American sports. And that's not not too far-fetched. Thank you for listening to A King's Reign. In the next episode, the time when a young LeBron James got his Jordan on. I did not want to say anything to him. I didn't want to think I was, I didn't want to show anybody that I was coaching by trying to draw some shit up that wasn't going to work. <laughs> you know, I swear, whatever you're doing, LeBron, you keep doing it. And an exclusive interview with former Team USA coach Mike Krzyzewski on coaching LeBron, Kobe, and the Redeem team.
Rob Peterson is the editorial supervisor and creator of A King's Reign. Joe Varden is the consulting producer. Kent Garrison is the theme music composer. Reporting for the series was provided by the Athletic NBA staff. Andrew Schlecht is the host of the series. Matt Havia and Mike Smeltz are the executive producers.